0: Thank you, Colby and Charlotte, and thank you to the Mullins family earlier for being our scripture readers. Good morning, church family. I am going to start today's sermon by talking about an online viral moment that broke the internet nine years ago tomorrow, but... Before doing that, it has become tradition for us on Fourth Sundays to play a big game of Kahoot together. So that is what we are going to do, and today's theme is viral internet moments. Okay, I hope your internet game is strong. So take out your cell phones, open a web browser, and go to kahoot.it. K-A-H-O-O-T dot I-T, you'll see these three straight screens in the login process. First screen is entering a game pin, then a nickname, then confirmation. So Seth, let's go ahead and let's reveal that game pin. Click classic mode, start. And in just a moment, you'll see that game pin. So 771-3372, Three three seven two. Enter the game pin, then enter your nickname, Uh, and remember to keep that safe for church because it will appear here on the screen. And as always, feel free to play individually, feel free to play as a couple. Maybe perhaps teaming up with a younger person and an older person might be good for internet memes because I am drawing from more than a decade worth of internet memes. Um, remember, the fastest person to uh, enter the correct response will score the most points. It is a relatively short quiz today, only five questions. So, Are we ready? As always, we are going to start off easy, 56. Let's, I think we're good. Oh, wow, still some more coming in. Let's just go for it. Here we go, start. We got 58 competitors here and here is question number one in our theme, Viral Internet Moments. Here we go, question is, at the 2021 presidential inauguration, who wore distinctive mittens and became an internet meme sensation? Was it Mitch McConnell, Mike Pence, Bernie Sanders, or Barack Obama? Who wore distinctive mittens and became an internet meme sensation. Yes, the vast majority of you got that correct. Bernie Sanders is the correct answer. Let's take a look at our leaderboard. On top, we have Charlie Sheen. I'm glad he's with us today. That's awesome, that's fantastic. All right, move on to the next question. In 2014, the Ice Bucket Challenge went viral on social media, raising funds and awareness for what disease was it? Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, multiple sclerosis, MS, Alzheimer's disease, or Parkinson's disease. So ALS, MS, Alzheimer's, or Parkinson's. The ice bucket challenge. Yes, most of you got that correct, it is ALS. That is correct, let's take a look at our leaderboard. And Charlie Sheen stays on top, and that guy Dave is close behind. Let's move on to the question number three. In 2014, Zach Brown jokingly launched a Kickstarter with a goal of $10 to make potato salad. It went viral. How much money was raised? $554.92, $5,549.20, $55,492, or half a million dollars, $554,920. Raising money to make potato salad for himself. So... All right, the, the, the correct answer is $55,492. Most of you got that correct. That is awesome, it makes me want to start a Kickstarter. All right, let's move on, see the leaderboard. Who's, that guy, that guy Dave is now on top. Charlie Sheen is in second. Let's, let's move on. What, did I miss something? Somebody's laughing at something here. Let's go on to question number four. In 2021, hedge fund investors bet against a company. Private investors rallied on Reddit together and drove up the stock price. Which was that company? AMC Entertainment, Epic Games, Electronic Arts, or GameStop? AMC Entertainment, Epic Games, Electronic Arts, or GameStop? Which company attempted to be shorted by investors? That is correct, the answer is GameStop, D. Most of you got that correct. Let's take a look at the leaderboard. And that guy, Dave, is still on top with T East close behind. Last question. This is it for all the marbles. In August 2022, an interview with this seven-year-old, you'll see the picture in a moment, and his love of a particular vegetable went viral. Name the vegetable. Was it corn, broccoli, asparagus, or bok choy? Corn, broccoli, asparagus, or bok choy? Let's see how we do here. The correct answer is A, corn. Well done, that is corn boy. Let's take a look at the leaderboard. And by the way, all three uh, place finishers come on up. So in third place, we have C Anderson, come on up. In second place, that guy Dave, you were on sound, so somebody else might have to come up for you. And in first place, we have Tracy East, come on up. Come on up. All right, it's all the same price for all of you. It's a $10 Starbucks gift card. So there you go. Congratulations. May, yes. May your, oh, it's that guy, Dave. It's not that guy, Dave. There's, okay, it wasn't our sound operator. Okay, may your coffee be as strong as your internet game. All right, nine years ago tomorrow, February 26th, 2015, an image surfaced online that tore our world in two. And perhaps that may sound like hyperbole, but when you see it, you will agree. It was the dress. Is it white and gold, or is it blue and black? Debate was fierce. Out of curiosity, are there any young people who have no idea what this image is? Just raise your hand. There's a few that don't have any idea. Okay, I'm curious. What color do you perceive that to be? It's blue and black? It's white and you see blue and black? And you see white and gray, white and gold? Yes. This is the amazing thing about this image. To this day, I am still incapable of seeing it any other way than white and gold. It brought me to the very edge of an existential crisis. People can't possibly think that that dress is black and blue. They are just being contrary for the sake of a goofy argument. The day was wild. The conversation was everywhere. I got sucked into hilarious passionate arguments at Kroger that day with people in line and also with the checkout clerk. It literally took the internet and the world by storm. Within one day of being posted, this image was receiving 840,000 views per minute. Twitter lost its mind. Mindy Kaling and BJ Novak, co-stars from the hit comedy series The Office, got into it on Twitter in a thread that was retweeted and loved countless thousands of times. BJ Novak started it off with a tweet simply stating, decisively, white and gold, to which Mindy Kaling, his former Office co-star responded with passionately, are you insane? (laughs) Mindy's tweets on the dress were quite hilariously overly passionate. Here's, Here's a great example. I think I'm getting so mad about the dress because it's an assault on what I believe is objective truth. And if people disagree with my objective truth, I get so angry and I want to destroy that way of thinking because it is just viscerally so wrong, which is why I'm running for president of the United States. Mindy's friend and fellow Hollywood actress, Elizabeth Phillips, tagged Mindy in a tweet saying, Mark and I might get divorced over this. Mindy's response, again, hilarious. I wouldn't normally want a nice family of four ripped apart for something like this, but honestly, I think it's for the best. Nine years later, it still stresses me out that the actual dress was indeed blue and black, because as mentioned, I know, we are so divided. We are a divided nation. It is blue and black, but I can't see it that way. And this probably seems like a bizarre introduction for a sermon, but there is something similar going on in our passage. An inability to see something as it actually is. So reading again from our Gospel text. Who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. This is a beautiful confession and one that we briefly talked about a couple of weeks ago on Transfiguration Sunday. But as our gospel story plays out, it seems that what Peter envisions when he says Messiah is very different from what Jesus has in mind. And Jesus seems to sense this disconnect between what they picture in a Messiah and who he is. Kind of like the dress. They are seeing white and gold when they should be seeing blue and black. Their colors are way off. And so to correct their vision, verse 31, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him." So why the rebuke? Because nothing, Jesus said, aligned with his picture. Their two images were completely at odds with one another. One of the key things that Peter and the rest of the disciples and many Jewish people expected from the Messiah is that he would defeat the enemy that was threatening God's people. That is the Romans. That was messianic requirement and expectation number one. And accompanying this expectation were things like messiahs don't get killed, which seems like not an unreasonable assumption. You can almost imagine it all playing out. Peter, listening to Jesus talk about suffering and being rejected, and perhaps if Jesus had stopped there, Peter wouldn't have protested. After all, he had seen Jesus experience some rejection and some suffering, accusations and angry mobs. But when Jesus said that he must be killed, that was the final straw. Peter couldn't take this anymore, and he rebukes Jesus. Not unlike Mindy Kaling's rebuke of B.J. Novak about the dress. Peter essentially says, are you insane? I can imagine Peter leaning over to his fellow disciple John saying, hey, just talk with the disciples for a minute while I straighten things out with Jesus. And then he turns to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I love you. You are amazing. And you say some incredibly wise things, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> um, how can I say this delicately, Jesus? Messiahs, they, they don't get killed. Um, that's kind of the opposite of what a Messiah does. So pay attention here, um, because this is important. You are not the one who gets defeated. You are the one who does the defeating. So, are we good? Are we good? (laughs) And they're not good. Leading up to the story of Peter's confession, in both Mark's and Matthew's Gospel, there are two common stories in both Gospels. The faith of the Canaanite woman and the feeding of the 4,000. And in these stories, Jesus is dropping little hints that his messiahship is going to defy expectations, but clearly the disciples aren't picking up on the hints. Jesus, this messiah, is not afraid to break with precedent. He is painting a new portrait of the messiah that uses a different color palette from what the disciples and many Jewish people were expecting. So let's take a look briefly at those two stories. In the story of the Canaanite woman, Jesus enters the region, the Gentile region of Tyre and Sidon, north of Galilee. And a woman learns of where he is and enters the house where he is staying. And she cries out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. In one gospel account, she is identified as a Syrophoenician woman, and in the other gospel account, she is identified as a Canaanite woman, which is interesting when you realize that for hundreds of years at this point, the Canaanites did not exist. They were no longer an identifiable people group. It would be like calling someone today an Aztec or a Viking. And this requires a little bit of a a history lesson So why were the Canaanites no longer an identifiable culture or people group? Deuteronomy 7 verses one and two says this, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. The reason why the Canaanites were no longer an identifiable people is because their land was conquered and resettled. But yet, in this story with Jesus, even though there is no Canaanite nation to speak of, this woman's ancient Canaanite lineage is mentioned which is intentional. Again, this is a hint that this Messiah is not bound by precedent. He is painting with some new colors. The Canaanite woman cries out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. And yet, a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy, when the Canaanites were mentioned, mercy was the one thing they were not to be shown. Show them no mercy. This is intentional Uh, competing symmetry here to use language from a couple of sundays ago by contrasting these two stories an old story where mercy was not shown and a new story where mercy is shown we are learning that jesus is what god has to say and we cannot quote moses to silence jesus Jesus is overturning and upending all long-held long assumptions about how power and strength are to be used in relation to peoples around us, to our enemies. The old mantra for dealing with the enemy was, show them no mercy. But the new mantra is this, show them great mercy. And Jesus does. Her daughter is healed that very moment. In both Matthew and Mark, this story moves directly into the feeding of the 4,000, which, of course, is a very similar story to Jesus's early miracle when he fed 5,000. At first blush, it just seems to be a case of deja vu, basically the same miracle, just slightly less impressive. Uh, He feeds fewer people, he starts with more food, and he ends up with fewer leftovers, so all in all, it's like he's dropped the bar a little on his miracle capabilities. Um, he's disappointed everyone. So why does this story of 4,000 feeding 4,000 people have seven baskets of leftovers and the 5,000 people have 12 baskets of leftovers? The symbolism of the 12 baskets is not that difficult to figure out. Twelve is a very Jewish number. There were twelve tribes of Israel. And this miracle that Jesus did feeding the 5,000 took place in the very Jewish region west of the Sea of Galilee. And the symbolism of these twelve baskets is God saying that Israel's God has returned. And Israel's God is sufficient to redeem and care for and restore this scattered twelve tribes back to him. What about the seven baskets in the feeding of the 4,000? Jesus, this miracle, takes place east of Galilee. He is no longer in Jewish territory, but he is in the region of the Decapolis, the ten cities. Like Tyre and Sidon, where Jesus met the Canaanite woman, this is a Gentile region, and it is filled with people like the woman in the previous story who can trace their history back to the Canaanites and the ancient nations we read about earlier in Deuteronomy. Now, let me read that Deuteronomy text for you one more time, but pay special attention to the highlighted portion. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. Can you see what God is doing? He is in a Gentile land filled with the descendants of seven ancient nations. And a thousand years earlier, the command for Moses was to destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, show them no mercy. But Jesus is what God has to say these seven ancient nations once reviled and rejected and despised now with the symbolism of these seven baskets they are welcomed and they are fed they are shown mercy the messiah is not bound and held by old stories Jesus is inviting Peter and the disciples and us to rethink everything we ever thought we knew about God and his hopes for the world. But yet even with these signs and pointers and indicators and hints that something new is happening, Peter can't see it. He can only see white and gold. He can only see the Messiah one way because there is something inside of him and inside of us that resists we sang about it earlier in the song god will heal our wounds the first verse we want to seek you in our own ways we'll fast and we'll sing and we'll give for our gain and the second verse we want the blessing of the god we made to live in the privilege he'll do what we say It makes me think a bit of the story of Jonah that CJ preached on a few weeks ago. How Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh so that the people might repent and save themselves from destruction. But Jonah had no interest in that. What Jonah wanted to do was enlist God to condemn the people that he wanted to condemn. And Peter is like Jonah. And we are like Peter. This Canaanite woman, once shown no mercy, is now shown great mercy. The seven nations, once reviled and rejected, with the symbolism of seven baskets, are now welcomed and fed. Jesus is what God has to say. And God is saying that he will not be enlisted to condemn those we want to condemn. He will not be Peter's weapon, and he will not be ours. The Messiah... Refuses to operate this way he will never be the Messiah of our bidding to be unleashed upon our enemies I wish that I could get inside of Peter's head to really know The thought process what was going through his mind when he interrupted Jesus and rebuked him and I suspect that perhaps his main concern was something like this if we embrace your plan of love and mercy, the enemy will never be destroyed. But the great irony is that I think Jesus was thinking the exact same thing. If we embrace your plan, Peter, of war and retribution, the enemy will never be destroyed. Peter mistakenly thought that the enemy was Rome, but the enemy was and has always been much deeper and more pervasive than that. The enemy is hatred and prejudice and greed and pride and arrogance, which are all things that lead to the dehumanization of the other. And those are things that will never be defeated with a sword. This is Black History Month. Dr. King had it right when he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. The Messiah that Peter wanted to wield could never win. Peter's Messiah would have simply mirrored the very enemy he sought to destroy and ironically would have kept the very things that gave rise to that power alive and well, even if they were conquered. Peter's Messiah holds no real hope. Only Jesus' Messiah holds the potential to upend and dethrone the power of Rome. All right, back to the dress. I still cannot see it as blue and black. I keep trying. I've read internet tips for how to do it, and I still can't do it. I can only see it as white and gold. I can only see something that isn't there. Like Peter, seeing a retributive, conquering military messiah when there wasn't one. Seeing something that isn't there is a problem. But I think a more common problem for many of us is seeing seeing something that is there that we don't like. Which makes me think of the quote commonly attributed to Mark Twain, which says... It's not the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. Our gospel text ends with this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I think I'm seeing correctly, but I see a Messiah and an early New Testament church that lives radically sacrificially, denying themselves and laying down their lives for one another. But I don't particularly like it. And I don't really want to explore fully what this could or should mean for me or for us. I also see a Messiah who seemed utterly unconcerned with commercial success, Describing his ministry, saying, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why couldn't he have said, The Son of Man has a modest place to lay his head? (laughs) I see that. I see his description, but I don't particularly like it, nor do I like the implications it likely holds for the church or for a pastor leading a church. I don't have a particular application to leave with you. Instead, I just want to offer some questions for you to consider. Where do you perceive the church to be seeing Jesus clearly? And where do you perceive the church to be seeing Jesus poorly? If Peter's historical context, living under Roman occupation, influenced his picture of Jesus... How might our historical context, unprecedented unprecedented affluence, extreme political partisanship, American individualism, how might that influence our picture of Jesus? What do you believe you see correctly in Jesus that you resist or that you don't like? These questions and more are in the uh, Church Center app, as we do every week. Let's pray together. Holy Father, forgive us for all of the ways, conscious and unconscious, that we refuse to see you for who you really are. Like Peter, we resist you. We want to seek you in our own ways. We want the blessing of the God we make. We, too, deserve the rebuke you spoke to Peter. In so many ways, we would rather enlist you than follow you. But change us, transform us, advance your kingdom in us and through us.